Welcome to Essential Ethics and this recording from the 2020 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference. I am your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. This session is a debate between our colleagues from the Ohiro Centre for Practical Ethics, Oxford University, Professor Dominic Wilkinson and Professor Julian Savalescu. We are fortunate to have special comments from Professor David Isaacs, Infectious Disease Specialist at the Children's Hospital Westmead, Sydney, and clinical lead of their ethics program. The topic for the debate is, if a COVID-19 vaccine is found to be safe and effective, should it be mandatory? Professor Julian Savalescu will speak first for the affirmative, and Professor Dominic Wilkinson respond for the negative. Both speakers draw parallels to current practice with the vaccines in Australia. It's an interesting and at times quite lively debate. Okay, thanks very much. For what it's worth, uh, I mean, the, the, the debate question is if a vaccine um, is, is safe and effective. I have doubts, given the acceleration of the development effort, that we would develop sufficient confidence uh, in the safety and efficacy to make it mandatory uh, at this stage, but I'm going to proceed on the basis that we do have high levels of confidence that the vaccine is um, safe and effective. Um, so coercion is justified when one person represents a threat of harm to others. So imagine you know, your child goes to the kitchen cupboard and takes a uh, bottle of toxic bleach to school that could be squirted in other children's eyes or given to them to drink. It's obvious that you can coerce the child to give up the, the bleach because of the threat of harm to other people. So infectious disease is actually a threat of one person to another. Um, one person isn't putting bleach in somebody's eyes or shooting them, but they're potentially passing on a virus that will kill them. Uh, and for that reason, coercion is justified. And this is the basis for lockdown and quarantine and other coercive methods. As we've talked about, time matters in, in this pandemic. And so it's not just that we should achieve herd immunity through vaccination or prevent the disease in other ways. It's that we should do it as fast as possible. And recent polls suggest that vaccine hesitancy uh, is quite significant. We probably need eight, or estimates are up to 80% of the population immune to create herd immunity, but only three in four people would be vaccinated in the US and 30% wouldn't want to do it immediately. So if the vaccine was safe and effective, mandatory vaccination may be the fastest way to reach herd immunity. Now, it's relatively easy to justify a mandatory vaccination as a coercive practice because we have coercion in many areas of life. In, in times of war, conscription is even used. Uh, and, and we sometimes talk about the war on the virus. Taxes are coercive. And if you have to pay taxes in the US, it means you'll have less money for your own health care. So paying taxes uh, can, can be a lethal practice. But probably the most mundane and ordinary form of coercion is the requirement for mandatory seatbelts. Um, now, interestingly, 50% of Americans opposed making seatbelts mandatory, 
but now 70% of them believe it's justified. And the reason is that they both benefit the wearer of the seatbelt. They reduce the chance of death by 50%, but they also benefit other occupants in the car and they also benefit the public by reducing healthcare costs. And the reason that they are mandatory is because of the benefit both to the individual and to others. And of course, Australia is one of the sort of mandatory vaccine capitals of the world. It already has no jab, no pay, no jab, no play. Um, so it, it's shown the benefits of mandatory vaccination. Now, there are various ways in which you can prevent COVID-19 and, and sort of here are um, a number of different categories. You can reduce transmission, you can reduce contact, you can do chemoprophylaxis, promote herd immunity in various ways. Uh, or vaccinate, and that can be voluntary or mandatory, and the voluntary can be incentivized or non-incentivized, and I'll talk about that briefly at the end. So mandatory vaccination is just one strategy for reducing the transmission and the morbidity of COVID-19. So here is an algorithm for when mandatory vaccination would be justified, and essentially there are three steps. Is the problem that we're dealing grave enough now, I think there are real issues about whether the problem with COVID-19 is grave enough, given that the estimates from, from Oxford at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine of overall mortality are um, between 0.3% and 0.03%. Um, but let's grant that it is a grave enough problem um, to consider, consider mandatory vaccination. Then the second level is what's our level of confidence in the, the safety and effectiveness? And as I said, I think there are reasons to doubt, again, that we'll have um, high enough confidence, but let's again assume that we do. You then have to compare the expected utility, um, the expected benefits minus the expected harms of mandatory vaccination versus other strategies, all of these strategies which I outlined here, including voluntary vaccination. And if the utility of mandatory vaccination is greater, so for example, it's the quickest way to get to herd immunity and there's no other effective ways of controlling strategy, you then have to look at the penalties that are imposed um, as a part of mandatory vaccination and say, are they proportionate to the gravity of the problem? And there are various penalties that you can impose. So seatbelts, if you don't wear a seatbelt, you're fined. It used to be about $200 when I was in Australia. Um, so fines are a financial penalty. They could be non-financial like social service. In Australia, we, you withhold benefits, so child benefits. And in the US, they withhold um, schooling. You have to vaccinate your child in order to, to go to school. In Italy, they impose fines. Um, and of course, you're all experiencing um, loss of freedom through lockdown and quarantine, which is again another way of uh, coercing people. So which of these you choose will depend on the gravity of the problem, but, but imposing some modest withholding of benefit or penalty certainly seems to be proportionate. Now, here are three reasons to think that mandatory vaccination um, is going to be important. I've mentioned speed. You know, every day you delay the development of herd immunity, thousands of people um, will die. Um, 
you need to protect the vulnerable. Some people can't be vaccinated for medical reasons, allergies, immune problems, other illnesses. And the elderly often don't mount a strong immune response. So I've also written another paper arguing we should vaccinate children, in fact, have mandatory vaccination for children for influenza because the elderly don't uh, mount a sufficient immune response and the way to save the greatest number of lives from flu would be actually to vaccinate children. Now, COVID appears different. Children don't appear to be super spreaders. Um, so, so that argument may not apply. And another important argument is immunity wanes over time. So even people who have been vaccinated may become vulnerable and there will be geographical variations. Herd immunity can be achieved in one area, but drop in others. And we see um, outbreaks of measles as a result of this. Australia is magnificently placed for a mandatory policy. Um, first of all, it already has mandatory vaccination, no jab, no pay, no jab, no play. So if you're doing um, mandatory vaccination for measles, um, surely mandatory vaccination for COVID-19 would be equally justifiable. But probably the strongest reason to support mandatory vaccination in Australia is the alternative is so bad. You've got such draconian liberty restrictions with catastrophic economic consequences. I saw a 7% drop in GDP. And, and there's, I think, almost no doubt that more people will die of cancer in Australia than COVID-19 as, as a result of the delays uh, in, in diagnosis and treatment. Um, so compared to what you have, compared to your status quo, mandatory vaccination is very attractive. Um, so if you'd had policies such as Sweden has, mandatory vaccination may be much less attractive. But, but given that Australia is the sort of capital of coercion, it's, it's far less coercive than lockdown uh, and, and the other measures that you have. Now, just one thing about conscientious objection. I saw that the, the Catholic Church had come out saying that people should be able to conscientiously object on the basis of the fact that the, the vaccine was derived from aborted fetal tissue in, in the 1970s, an abortion which was performed for, for other reasons. Um, but there should be no right of conscientious objection in the cases of lethal threat. Conscientious objectors in war are often imprisoned or even historically were experimented upon. Um, there's no right of conscientious objection to wearing seatbelts. Um, and when it comes to the threat of one person to another, conscientious objection should not be a way of, of avoiding the reduction in that threat. It's true that we should identify alternatives that may be more acceptable, but if the Oxford vaccine is the safest and most effective um, and mandatory vaccination is implemented, there should be no right of conscientious objection. So I think mandatory vaccination can be justified if the problem is, is grave, if the alternatives are worse and the penalties are proportionate. But actually, I've also argued that where there is lower confidence in long-term safety, other strategies such as paying people or providing benefits in kind, such as immunity passports or greater freedom of movement or employment may be preferable. Um, but that's a topic for another debate. Thank you. Dom. Great, okay. Uh, so Julian has uh, very helpfully made the case uh, that in the situation as we're likely to face that COVID-19 vaccines should not be mandatory. So I, I'm going to reinforce 
that case, it, it's very good of him to, to support my argument. Um, I'm going to start by, again, uh, talking about things that are very well understood in this audience. So one reason to potentially make vaccines mandatory is, is for concern for the welfare of the children themselves. So we have this often talked about principle of, of uh, the best interests of the child. But it, as we're all aware, if you just focus on the best interests of the child, that doesn't seem to leave any place for parents' views in decision-making. And in reality, the ethical landscape that we face is, is one where we afford parents significant discretion in decision-making about treatments for their child. Uh, there are some treatments where they uh, are potentially beneficial for the child that we allow parents to withhold. Some medical treatments that uh, are potentially harmful for the child that we allow parents to request uh, and we nevertheless provide. Uh, and, and in this audience, I don't think there's any need for me to, to explain the concept of the zone of parental discretion. Uh, there's all sorts of familiar, familiar examples to, to clinicians in pediatrics of situations where parents make suboptimal decisions uh, that, that we none, nonetheless acquiesce with. Uh, and instead we draw, rather than focusing simply on what the best interest of the child is, we draw on the principle that, uh, that intervention to prevent a parent's decision, to overrule a parent's decision, to involve a court, is justified only when their decision places a child at significant risk of serious harm. And indeed, Julian has, uh, has often, uh, with me, uh, been a strong advocate of this principle when it comes to paediatric decision-making. When we think about COVID vaccine and children, would it be in a child's best interest? Well, like other vaccines, I, I'm inclined to think that it probably is in the child's best interest in the context of, of COVID. Uh, as Julian's pointed out, the, the risks to the children themselves from COVID are likely to be extremely small. Difficult to know just what the, the risks are of the vaccine and, and the, the great challenge will be in arriving at that information before we're in a position to be rolling out the vaccine. I think probably on that basis, given the uncertainty, that, that itself is going to provide a, a strong argument in favour of not mandating a vaccine. But I'm going to set that aside and just say, let's assume that it is in the child's best interest to have the COVID vaccine. That's not enough. We have to say, if we're going to mandate it, that it would be harmful to the child not to receive the vaccine. And I think that's just clearly not the case. Again, if we think about the spectrum of other suboptimal decisions that we make, allow parents to make. Again, there's a very simple consistency argument here. We allow parents to opt out of vaccines that, that all of us as pediatricians think would be in the child's best interests to receive measles vaccine, pertussis vaccine, pneumococcal vaccine. Um, we don't overrule parents in that situation. It's worth being clear, because uh, I think there is a bit of confusion about what counts as mandatory vaccination. So, uh, Julian's referred to Australian vaccine policy as mandatory, but in fact, people in Australia are given a financial incentive, child care benefit access, if they have a vaccination certificate, but they're allowed to opt out of it if they have a, a conscientious objection. That is not a mandatory, mandatory vaccination. On the other hand, seatbelts are mandatory in Australia. You cannot drive without a seatbelt. If you drive without a seatbelt, you'll be stopped by the, by the police and fined, and fined again until you're stopped from driving. So seatbelts are mandatory vaccines, even in Australia, where there's a, a, a strongly uh, coercive policy to encourage vaccination is not mandatory. But really the issue, as Julian's highlighted, is not about the benefit and harm to children, it's about the harm to others. There's the central case for 
vaccinating children is about preventing COVID in adults. And as Julian's already conceded, the, the challenge for that argument is that it, it appears that, although there's significant uncertainty, is that children play a relatively low role in transmission. They are often asymptomatic. They can indeed have the virus detected in their nasopharynx, but they're not coughing and sneezing. Uh, they don't appear to be playing a large role. They're not super spreaders, as, uh, as already has been mentioned. Second, Julian's also mentioned the, the concept of a herd immunity threshold. Now, the, the, the basis is that you need to have a certain proportion of the population who are immune to achieve uh, sufficient herd immunity to prevent or attenuate an epidemic. And the proportion that you need depends on the R number. So there are some incredibly infectious agents for which you need very high vaccine coverage to achieve herd immunity. Influenza and indeed COVID-19 are in the much lower range. Uh, and indeed the estimates that I'm aware of, and again, I might be corrected by, by those uh, in the audience or, or Dave Isaacs who, who are experts in this area, is that for, for COVID-19, assuming a 75% efficacy of the vaccine, we would potentially need of the order of 70% uptake uh, of the vaccine. So in that context, the question is whether it's justified to be mandating a vaccine. Again, there, there are issues of consistency. There are other vaccine preventable diseases that, that we do not mandate, even though children could spread the, the virus and, and cause harm to adults, influenza, pertussis virus. Julian said it would be ethical to, to mandate uh, influenza vaccine, but we, do, we don't do that at present. We don't, we don't mandate pertussis or varicella vaccine. And one of the principles, one of the basic ethical principles is that uh, when we're thinking about public health policy is that we should use the least coercive means possible to achieve our public health goal. So if we need 75% levels of herd immunity and we can achieve that through voluntary vaccination, then we should do so. We shouldn't be embarking upon mandatory vaccination if we can achieve the public health benefit by less coercive means. And on that basis, I think it's very clear that we should not be mandating COVID-19 vaccine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Don. You've also uh, made a very clear case for the other side. David, would you like to make some comments? Thanks very much, John. And uh, thanks again to both speakers. Excellent, very stimulating talks. So it's brought up some very interesting concepts, I thought, that I just wanted to, to mull about a little bit. The first one was that, um, Julian, at one stage you said, Coercion is justified when there's a threat of harm to others. And Don actually sort of modified that a bit by talking about the concept of significant risk of significant harm. And um, I've been thinking about that recently with regard to child protection issues. Um, because we've had people say that the criterion for invoking child protection is ROSH, risk of significant harm. That's often used that term. And like you, I've done, I've sort of said, no, surely it's significant risk of significant harm. Because a risk of significant harm could be, when it comes to HIV exposure of a child, for example, the risk could be incredibly, incredibly low, but there is still a risk. And if they get HIV, it is significant harm. But if the risk is one in a billion, 
are we really going to say that's a child protection issue? So I do think there is a qualifying thing here about saying it's got to be significant risk and of significant harm. So there was that. Then there was the interesting sort of Barney between the two of you about whether no jab, no pay and no jab, no play constitutes um, mandatory um, immunization or whether it's um, Dominic, you didn't call it mandatory. You said, no, it's not mandatory. It's a financial incentive. Um, I've seen this debate paid out. The lawyers, the government lawyers say, no, 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 it's not mandating. It's not even a penalty. It's, it's an inducement to get your child immunized. So putting it in that sort of positive slant, um, this isn't a penalty at all. This is not um, forceful. Now, to my way of thinking, and Mar Margie Danchin from Royal Children's has expressed this as well. This was a measure that wasn't necessary. When 95% of people were getting their children immunized voluntarily, why would you need to induce? And Dominic, you called it strongly coercive, despite the fact that you were trying to pretend that it was a, an inducement. Um, so both of you were fluffing around that a little bit. To, but to my way of thinking, at least, uh, no jab, no pay, and no jab, no play, actually risk disadvantaging some of the most socially disadvantaged people anyway for minimal benefit. It was estimated to increase the risk of uh, the proportion of children immunized by a fraction of 1%, not even an increase of 1%. Um, and yet sent a message. Now, I think the government was trying to send a message to anti-vaxxers and everyone generally, we really value immunization. And to my way of thinking, at least, one way of saying we value immunization is by persuading people, not forcing them, by saying to them, look, get your children immunized, it's the sensible thing to do. And if you can persuade 95% of people, then that's very convincing evidence that you've, you've persuaded most people and protected others through that measure. So I agree with Dominic that normally we let parents decide about their children's health within limits and accept that they will often make decisions with which we won't agree. The proportion, Dom, that we think that we have to get immunized, and we're not absolutely convinced of that, the proportion of the population that needs to be immune is estimated at about 60%. And so you can work out the maths depending on your um, so I thought your 75% of 70%, well, that's around 50%, isn't it? So that's a little bit lower, but it, it's perhaps a tiny bit higher than that, that you need to get immunized, depending on how effective your vaccine is, to get herd immunity. But I guess the question is, how coercive we want to be in terms of getting people immunized? And are we, what are we going to value most here? Are we going to value most autonomy? and parental choice about their children? Or are we going to say, the quicker we get everyone immunized, the more lives we will save. And so if we have a safe, effective, effective vaccine, then we will save more lives by making it mandatory. And I think in a way that also goes to what sort of country want, we want to live in, what sort of society we want to live in, which do we value most, autonomy or lives? <laughs> So I'm going to leave it at that and uh, open it to the audience, please. Thanks very much, David. That's a question I think that's that's come through, isn't it, in, in other aspects of, uh, of of COVID. 
Um, I just wanted to perhaps tackle Julian while we just get some more questions coming through. Julian, you've talked about potentially paying people or compensating them either for having the vaccine and just taking the risk or potentially if they're harmed by the vaccine. I mean, assume if you're going to mandate it, then are we obliged to compensate people for being harmed? And so I guess one question is, is a national health service like that we have um, and an NDIS sufficient? We don't need to compensate people in Australia if we're going to mandatorily vaccinate them? Well, we need actually to have another program for this. Oh, and I think, you know, in, in the UK, I think there's a, there's a compensation scheme. I mean, given, I can't, I, I can't remember the figures. I think you're spending $80 billion on this JobKeeper scheme. Um, so you could afford to pay people a lot to have a vaccine and to provide extremely generous compensation uh, when that's the status quo. Um, so, so when David says, oh, we've got to decide what sort of you know, country you want to live in, as I said, you're living in the most draconian anti-libertarian society, you know, that I know of at the moment. So you've already voted with your feet about what sort of society you'll do anything to save the life of anyone, no matter how, how old. So, you know, in the context of that, vaccination looks like a good deal. Just one point about this mandatory vaccination. Then we need to get our, our terms right. Mandatory means coercive. Coercion is removing an option that somebody either wants or that will benefit them. So Dominic is right that it depends on how you view child benefits and childcare. Are they something that somebody is entitled to that you're removing? Or are they something that you're giving people if they choose to get vaccinated? And I think that given that we had a child benefit scheme before, and that was removed, that constitutes coercion. So that is a mandatory scheme. I mean, that's just the, the concept of coercion and, and what mandatory means. So, you know, I, I think we need to get our, our terms clear. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it isn't helpful to, to kind of have a terminological quibble, but I mean, clearly if people can opt out of a vaccination scheme by simply saying, I object, that then you're not mandating it. If you can, people can say, I opt out, I, I, don't, I don't want to wear a seatbelt, then, then you're not mandating. That's wrong. That's completely wrong. In conscription, you could conscientiously object. Now, conscription was mandatory. You just went to jail if you didn't go to fight. Now, conscription is mandatory, but you still allowed conscientious objection. So conscientious objection is separate to whether something is mandatory. Well, if we're thinking about should vaccines be mandatory, the idea is that whether parents should be required to vaccinate their children. And it's clear that in Australia, parents are not required. They're strongly motivated to by the structure. Whether that's justified is another question. So, so let, let's talk about, let's, let's not focus on the terminology. The question is, would, would it be justified to be strongly coercive? And the, the principle is, if we can achieve that good by less coercive means, then we should. Nobody disagrees. If we don't need the coercion, why would we employ it? That just avoids the debate. Of course, if we just go to people, go and get vaccinated for COVID-19 and 90% of them get vaccinated within a week, there's no point in having coercion. And indeed, it would be completely in, in, wrong. Indeed. indeed is, thank you. To get there more quickly, then is it justified? As, as David says, do we value liberty more than well-being? Which one do we value more? Oh, this is exactly what we wanted. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, you too. Um, of course, I mean, I think running through it, though, is you've talked herd immunity. And so 
you know, the question is a little bit artificial in that, you know, we have mandatory vaccines or coerced vaccines for children. We don't have coerced vaccines for adults. And we know that adults, um, you know, give pertussis to babies. We don't, uh, we encourage, but don't mandate parents having pertussis vaccine. So and if we, we want herd immunity... That... Health, we do have mandatory immunisations for healthcare workers, interestingly. Sure, and quite a yeah. debate about whether um, health well, workers should be made to have influenza vaccine each year. So I can yeah. see the poll going three ways here. So if we're talking herd immunity, we're going to need to mandatorily vaccinate or vaccinate the whole population. Um, it's interesting that there's such a dichotomy between children and adults getting well or unwell. You could almost make an argument for mandatory vaccination on the principle of not harming others and things that Julian's talked about for adults is less relevant for children who are not super spreaders. And I think we have a third, the third poll could be healthcare workers vaccines. Um, Lynn, have we got some, uh, or George, Georgina, have we got some questions through from? Well, just one from a bit earlier, uh, and it's something that's been on my mind as well. Um, we're sort of talking about it as though all, mandatory and everything, as though we're all accepting that vaccination of children in a widespread scale is something that we all accept and agree with to get us through this pandemic. But there was a question saying that, what if there is some really valid concerns of of parents um, and, and healthcare workers too, I guess, about the unknowns? So firstly, it might be about the unknowns because maybe the vaccine hasn't been tested or trialled on a large cohort of children. So if that population group hasn't been rigorously and expansively tested. And also, how do we know the long-term effects of a vaccine for any of us, adults or children, when this sort of disease has only been with us for less than a year? So do those things become valid before we start assuming that it should be mandatory? It's really good. Uh, Just a, a question. Point. <laughs> David, do you want to weigh in on, on that one? We'll have a vaccine. We'll think it's pretty safe based on what we know about vaccines generally, but we won't be totally sure because we haven't used it for 20 years. Look, so can I mean, we make I mean, it mandatory? I mean, one of my concerns also is um, giving fodder to the anti-vaxxers, if you like, and vaccine disasters will certainly give them fodder with some reason. Um, so by and large, I'm against making things mandatory unless we absolutely have to. Uh -huh. Now, I've just seen this wonderful term in here, nudging. This is an ethics conference. We should think about uh, nudging. Um, and there's a sort of, gosh, I wonder if we just sort of nudge people gently towards our view. But nudging can be seen as is to what happens in the supermarket and why you buy those Tim Tams you didn't intend to because it's been put right in front of you at the right height at the right time of day. So, Julian, do you think, uh, are you justifying nudging? Because people talk about you know, really well, look, nudging as stealing autonomy. I mean, this is why we need philosophy for bioethics because, as I said, coercion is removing an option nudging is structuring the options to encourage people to ch it doesn't remove an option it's not coercion it's completely different to coercion so it nudging, is trickery. it's trickery and it's removing a degree of your autonomy isn't it it's not it's not trickery it's it's you know options have to be placed in an order and how you choose that order will influence how people yeah you know, so you know, it's that's not coercion. So it's not it's nothing to do with mandatory vaccination. So nudging, I think, is in, in you know raises other issues, but it doesn't raise issues around the fundamental restrictions of liberty and autonomy. Can I take us off in a different tack slightly? Is that all right, John? Do I have permission? Permission granted. Thank you very much. Um, 
I was interested in the consistency argument uh, and it made me think of a discussion I had with someone after the lunchtime session today about whether um, dying from COVID-19 is somehow less acceptable than dying from other diseases. And so we have, we feel a greater imperative to stop deaths from that reason. And we feel less imperative to stop deaths from influenza or pertussis or other chicken pox, other conditions. And is that part of the kind of what's going on in the background that is influencing our sense of the urgency about finding a vaccine making sure that everybody gets the vaccine. So I'd be really interested in people's comments about that. So, so one uh, phenomenon that's been well described by a US ethicist called Al Johnson in the, in the 70s or 80s uh, was a phenomenon that he called the rule of rescue. It's not a rule, but it is a, it's a behavioral phenomenon, which is that government societies feel compelled, ethically compelled to rescue identifiable individuals at much greater cost than they feel ethically obliged to uh, avoid harm to unidentifiable individuals. And one of the things about that has happened in the context of, of the COVID pandemic is that those who have COVID-19, those who've died from COVID-19 are incredibly visible. Our newspapers, our, our, our televisions are full of COVID-19. And that very visibility mot strongly motivates governments to spend huge amounts of money in preventing deaths from COVID-19. And many people have said, well, look, hang on, there are vast numbers of, of people who die every year from other infectious diseases, other, other causes. We're potentially uh, saving lives, avoiding deaths from COVID-19 at the cost of other deaths from cancer or costs of deaths and morbidity related to mental illness from lockdown. So um, it, it's a, a, the rule of rescue, although it's a very prevalent psychological phenomenon, is a, is a cognitive, mis is a mistake. But at the same time, I think we, it's also a mistake to say that we shouldn't uh, devote any attention to COVID-19 because we have many people who die each year from influenza and there's lots of people who die each year from malaria and t tuberculosis. We certainly shouldn't ignore those other illnesses, but the, the nature of a pandemic, the acute nature of it, uh, creates a very large, enormous surge of healthcare demand that in itself would cause sick, uh, very severe harm. Um, and so that's part of the ethical equation. Uh, and the other issue is that it is possible in the context of, of this acute threat to both mitigate the harm with, for example, social distancing and with the development of a vaccine in a way that is potentially not immediately accessible to us for an endemic threat. We can't eradicate malaria this year, even if we spend vast amounts of money. That doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to eradicate malaria in the future, but it does motivate the response now. I think it's worth stressing that at some point mandatory vaccination is ethically required and, and would, would be implemented. So, you know, Spanish influenza killed 50 to 100 million people and it killed young people rather than old people. If what we were experiencing now was Spanish influenza, mandatory vaccination would be justified. Or if COVID-19 had the mortality of Ebola, then we would have mandatory vaccination. Now, how close is COVID-19 to these, to these scenarios? Oh, I think it's quite a long way away. Um, but given the gravity of the response, so many more people will die from lockdown and the economic consequences and the delayed healthcare that you've created a grave emergency that 
makes mandatory vaccination a lot more attractive. Now, of course, if something else will work equally effective, we should adopt that. We don't want to restrict liberty unless we really have to. Um, but the question is how we cross the threshold where we have to do that. And, and there's a good argument that we have. That's a, a, a really good point. And we do have to, to go to voting. So perhaps we, we might do that um, now. So let's answer this. Assuming vaccine for COVID-19 is effective, should the vaccine be mandatory for children? The bottom line's longer than the top line. Wow. No. no. All right. Well, I'm, again, I'm it really pleased that only a few don't know. So I think that we've, we've got a solid answer out there. Do, Glenn, do you think we should ask a question about adults? I'd Just, like to ask the question about healthcare workers. All right. Well, why don't we finish with healthcare workers? So should we finish with that? While we're waiting for that, I would just like to bring up a comment from Mandy Elali earlier, who said, she's done the figures for us, if over 90% of the population are currently vaccinated and we only need 60% of the population vaccinated for herd immunity with COVID, then there probably wouldn't be a need to mandate it. Well, that's true, except that just to tackle that, that 90% of the population are not vaccinated. 90% of the children are. Mm. Uh, and some of those vaccines are lifelong or people have had exposures. Mm. I think people are very quick to vaccinate their children. I sit in clinics and they often very pleased to go down to vaccine land for their vaccines for their children. And the, you know, particularly the dads are not going to have an influenza vaccine. So it's, it, there are some subtleties there in that information. So 60% have to be immune, not 60% vaccinated. Okay. So sure. how effective the vaccine is. Yeah, well, we might have, you know, much greater background um, Figures, but I guess we're not going to go and take blood first and know what the whole population uh, figures are. So let's answer this. Assuming vaccine for COVID-19 is effective, should it be mandatory for healthcare workers? So, so we're right? asking the same question, but in relation to healthcare workers. In relation workers, to healthcare workers, and I guess uh, Dom and Julian, uh, you may or may not know that you know, one of the really most at-risk groups in Victoria during our uh, outbreak too have been healthcare workers. What I think 30% of infected people have been healthcare workers. It's some enormous figure. Polls open. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, the yeses have it. The yeses for healthcare workers have it. And, we'd, we'd be, and we'd probably get, with a little bit of extra community immunity, plus 60% vaccinated, we'd have herd immunity. Mm, so the burden falls on healthcare workers to be vaccinated. Well, they might be the most, uh, the most important people to vaccinate to protect the community. We're getting it. Uh, That's an interesting place to end up. Thank well, you, John. Well done. All right. Well, look, uh, thank you, everybody. It's been a fantastic evening. It's been a great debate. And Julian and Dom, thank you so much for uh, joining us from afar and uh, really giving us some really interesting points to think about. That was Professor Julian Savalescu and Professor Dominic Wilkinson debating whether a COVID-19 vaccine should be mandatory. The National Children's Bioethics Conference is brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. The conference was supported by the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre. If you enjoyed the podcast or the conference, please support our work by joining the Friends. The podcast was produced by Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. If you would like to know more about the Children's Bioethics Centre, or join us in 2021 for our 13th National Children's Bioethics Conference. Look us up on the website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired.